Carol Dixon, welcome to Fresh Perspective. I'm very excited to have you with us and um, look forward to what you are going to share with us, all the big uh, lessons and uh, deep wisdoms. <laughs> is that a word, wisdoms? <laughs> it is now. Well, now it is. That's <laughs> a word. Yeah, but, but welcome. Thank you so much. So I thought I'd kick off with a, a question that you will definitely know the answer to and move to questions that you might not. <laughs> so Go the first it, one is, 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 what do you do and why do you do what you do? Okay, so what do I do? So, oh, Francois, I have a multiple of um, roles that I play. I know. So um, I am an imago therapist and a psychologist. So what I do most of my time is I work with couples and um, using the Imago therapy process to assist them in their relationship and to either deepen a, a good connection and deepen it or otherwise to heal a, um, a connection where there may have been a rupture or um, where, you know, there's been some challenges in their relationship. So that is um, the majority of my work. However, I also work with other kinds of pairs. And one that I'm particularly passionate about is working with parents and older children, so teenagers and older, um, to, again, develop that connection, deepen the connection, heal any ruptures that they may be experiencing in their relationship um, and the, the main reason I do this, um, the, the parents and the children, is because of what I call upstream prevention. Yes, so, that was very interesting when you, when you um, shared that with me earlier. So, so explain what you mean by that. So upstream prevention is so that we equip uh, individuals and, um, and in, within their relationships to um, develop strong, deeply connected relationships so that going forward, when they start moving into adult relationships, that they actually have the tools, the skills, the experience, the, the know-how um, how to make their, their own adult relationships strong and healthy, but also so that any kind of wound that has occurred during their childhood that we're already starting to make an impact on the healing of that wound and not wait until later down the line when it's starting to affect their adult relationships negatively. They already um, have done a lot of work in the, the space of the parent-child relationship. And, you know, that's not to say all parents are bad. Parents, no. predominantly, parents are really trying their best. They have amazingly good intentions. They love their children. Um, but unfortunately, because we're not perfect as parents, we make a lot of mistakes and often we un unintentionally wound our children in areas that have, you know, come, that kind of plays out later down the line. So the upstream prevention is so that we prevent downstream problems. Um, and even more specifically for me, one area that I really am so fired up about is with fathers and sons where fathers have perhaps been involved in behaviors and activities that really have um, not served themselves, their family or their children. You know, we can talk about that a little bit more later. 
but the the profound impact that the imago processes have on this relationship and the healing that can happen okay um, and the okay. strengthening of the relationship to prevent you know what what we call ger- generational wounding you yeah. know that thing where the sins of the fathers are visited upon yes. you know yeah. one generation after the other that we can actually stop that in its tracks okay so sorry i wanted to interrupt you there just just can you give like three lines about what imago is and what what you mean when you say that okay sorry i assumed that um that was kind of a given yeah so imago is a form of therapy that recognizes that we have been influenced and affected profoundly by our childhood experiences and the environments in which we grow up and these experiences then affect how we relate as adults in our adult relationships and what imago does first of all there's a very powerful theory but what imago is significantly unique about is the tools that we teach therapists and facilitators to work with couples families um so that they develop the relational kinds of skills that can improve their relationships and heal. Mm-hmm. So that's Thank you. kind of in a nutshell I hope. Yes, yes. And many people who listen to this might not know or understand mm. what what imago is. So okay, so I just want to um go back to what you said about working with with fathers fathers and sons and like the the upstream prevention. So if I understand correctly what you mean is that you work with the 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 parents and the children older like teenagers and older to help them heal some of the wounds that might have occurred growing up because that'll help them once they have a romantic relationship down the line absolutely okay so so what are That's some exactly of the the, right. the things you've seen happen with with the fathers and the sons mm So with the fathers um I find that there are many men who have um a completely against their own desires and it's it's it kind of they almost feel like it happens to them they end up uh hurting their families um sometimes physically so you know we're talking about domestic violence and um men who uh become so enraged um with their feelings of powerlessness and frustration and there's a lot of factors that go into these feelings and they just don't know how to communicate they don't know how to share what's going on inside of them and, and the the only thing that they know how to do is to just express their rage and their anger physically mm. and um and they have huge remorse enormous remorse and guilt after guilt, yeah. this and shame that keeps them stuck in a cycle of self-worthlessness. Mm-hmm. And so many of them come to therapy pretty much on their knees begging that you know I need help and it's hard for them to do their own work it's very hard but there are some incredibly courageous men out there. And I get I get quite emotional when I think about it because I've witnessed men big huge strapping men mm-hmm. on their knees in tears yeah. begging to have this terrible um history you know erased in their lives and so mindful of the impact that it's had on the people that they really love especially mm. their children and their greatest fear is that this will be passed on to their sons mm. 
And so, um, you know, they, they can do a lot of individual work and work towards changing their behavior, taking responsibility, um, trying to, you know, repair the damage. But a piece of that that I often find missing is the actual engagement with the child. And they do try. They may go to their, their boys and mm. say, you know, listen, what daddy's done is, is not right. And I don't want you to be like that when you grow up. They may go as far as that. But that doesn't always do enough because, unfortunately, children download what they see. Yes. They don't have a filter to stop that when they're young. They just see it and it gets downloaded. It gets internalized. And that is why we find down the line as adults, you know, these men snap and often they themselves have been exposed to abuse or they've even witnessed their fathers abuse their mothers and they've made concerted decisions. I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to do this. Mm. And unfortunately, they find themselves doing it. Why? Because they haven't had a process where all of that downloading of behavior that is kind of instinctively placed, it's kind of like a form of brainwashing in a yeah. way, that they haven't actually had that healed. And so the step for me that I think is vital is to have these men sit with their young boys and start a process of dialogue where they can really listen to what their boys' experiences have been and offer them what we call a corrective emotional experience where the boys can experience what it feels like to be in a different kind of relationship with their father, what it feels like to be in real connection, mm. what it feels like to experience love and compassion and empathy and validation for their feelings, which is what their fathers never had and could therefore never give. And so it's kind of really giving them that space, that safe space, a very sacred space where they can connect at that level. And yeah, I mean, I, I, just I witnessed the profound empathy and compassion and um, connection yeah. that happens in the space. That is so, so amazing. Um, you know, I grew up with, with a father who had like these, these, it was like two different people. Most of the, of the time it was um, a guy with great, a great sense of humor. He was a great teacher. So he was always teaching me something, but like in a mentorship way, guiding me, asking me questions. Um, you know, why do you do it like that? Oh, I see like that happened now. Why do you think that happened? Helping me to think and, and solve problems. Um, but on the other hand, he could be very aggressive and, and, and reactive and unfair. And also he struggled with, with alcohol his, his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can just imagine the impact that uh, something like this would have had on my relationship with my father, but also with, with my wife and my children. Mm. And how, um, and tell me if this is true, but I imagine the, the amount of growth and healing that you go through when you do this with the dialogue and the process that you facilitate with your father mm. is, is much, it's exponentially faster, bigger, uh, deeper than it would be when you do it with a partner or a therapist down the line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, um, I think that it's in real time. So it's the real relationship. Mm. And, you know, one of the things with, and I, and I don't want to undermine any kind of therapy because I think it's also needed and necessary, but um, you think of a young teenager who's having problems at school and um, you know, that they behave, they, they, they're acting out. 
And of course, they get um, referred to a psychologist or a social worker to try and deal with their behavior. And the focus is all on their behavior and what they're doing wrong and how they're acting out. And this needs, you know, they need to kind of start behaving properly now. And they start sharing with the therapist their relationship with their father, particularly perhaps. And, you know, the therapist is now governed by confidentiality issues. And what do they do next? They kind of try to support that youngster in in, in individual therapy. It doesn't often go beyond that. Maybe they might sort of work towards getting the father in to talk to the father if they get the child's permission, which is obviously often not granted because they're terrified that, you know, once the father hears that they've been disclosing information about the family, there's going to be repercussions. And so, I'm, I'm guessing, sorry, Carol, even if that is granted, the father being willing to have that kind of conversation. Yes. So what I think what this does is that you've got a willing father, and that is, that is very important, that the process starts with the father saying, I want to do this. I want to make right. I can see my child's behavior is a reaction to what has been happening at home. And I need to take responsibility for this. And I need to kind of step into the therapeutic shoes. Instead Mm. of the therapist doing the healing with the child, the father gets to be facilitated. So they don't have to go through the training of becoming a psychologist or a therapist, but they have a process of facilitation where they can actually learn how to reach the heart Mm. of their child and have the repair done in that relationship so that the child starts to feel worthy and validated and valued and safe again. Yeah. Makes sense. And, and, and in learning to do that, I'm guessing that's a big healing process for the fathers as well. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It's a healing process, but it's also, you know, I just see these men going, I wish somebody had done this with me. I wish hmm. I'd known about this. Um, I wish I'd discovered this earlier. So much damage could have been prevented. And, um, you know, we do this in, in two different ways, Francois. The one is individually with individual pairs. So a father could come to me and bring his son, and we, we do it as a separate, you know, an individual process with the two of them. But we also do the workshops where we have, it's called a generational workshop, and we have pairs of a parent and a a teenager or a parent in even adult children it's never too late I mean that is the downstream repair but it is never too late to do that and one of the things that I have noticed is the witnessing process that when people witness the healing journey in other relationships it has quite a profound effect on the way they experience themselves and it's almost like they're looking in a mirror and they can see themselves in the, the behavior and through the feelings of the other people that they're witnessing. And this makes, often makes them go, oh, my word, I never saw it like that. Mm-hmm. So it creates a different lens through which they see the world, um, which is very profound. Yeah. What are some of the big discoveries that you see fathers have? What are the, the big aha moments for them in terms of so their one, own you know, their own baggage or shame and guilt, the things you mentioned before? Yeah, I think one of the main ones is realizing that it's okay to have feelings. Mm-hmm. that And it's okay to have vulnerable feelings. It's okay to be vulnerable. I think this comes up time and time again, is that, you know, the, the past is all about hiding your feelings, being strong, 
not allowing yourself to be, be vulnerable because if you're vulnerable, you're weak and then you are liable, you know, to, to being hurt and, um, you know, to, to not being strong and being labeled as all sorts of things. Mm. So it's that awareness that, gosh, other men uh, expressing, you know, men expressing feelings and being vulnerable and being okay with it and being safe with it. I think that's one of the most profound um, experiences that they do have. Um, and I think also just realizing that I can listen to my child. I can actually, it's not going to take away my power as a parent if I actually listen to what my son or even my daughter is saying and validate their experience. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, undermining my position as a parent and you know it's it's parents often find it very very difficult to really deeply listen to and validate their child's experience when it may be very different to their own because they're afraid that they're going to have to give up some kind of parental position here um and there's lots of reasons for that but i think that's a very profound thing is oh my word when i sit down and listen to my child and what they have to say they get blown away by the wisdom and the capacity that children have to express themselves and, you know, their ideas. Did you talk about uh, what you mean by validation? Validation, the, the validating the child's experience or feelings. What does that mean? Sure. So um, when you, maybe I should say what, what invalidation is first. Okay. So, yeah. you know, your, your child says, um, sort of comes home, for example, and says, Dad, um, I want to get a tattoo. And Dad goes, "What? Are you crazy? That's ridiculous. Never ever are you going to get a tattoo. Not in my, you know, not, not over my dead body. Are you get, yeah. getting a tattoo?" And the child says, "Well, why? Why can't I? Everybody else is." And um, Dad says, "Well, because in this house we don't do things like this, and because I say so, and because that's a really stupid idea." So that's very invalidating of the child's desire. Mm. Validation would sound like this. Okay, well, let's talk about it. You know, tell me, uh, you know, I'm curious as to why you want a tattoo. Well, dad, everybody, all my friends have got one and I feel left out. Okay, so I'm hearing that you feel left out. That makes sense. Mm. It makes sense that you want to be a part of your you know, the crowd and that, that you want to fit in. And it's one of the most important things as a teenager to fit in. This is kind of your, you know, becoming your extended family. And of course you want to fit in, you want to feel you belong. That makes complete sense that you would want to do that. That's validation. It doesn't mean you agree. It's not agreeing and saying, okay, fine, go and get a tattoo. You may have to follow it up with, all right, well, let's look at, you know, what are the benefits I can hear? Can you think about maybe some of the things that might you know, maybe my perspective around maybe why a tattoo might not be such a good idea. And, you know, you'd be surprised how your kids know you so well, they'll be able to quote exactly why you think it's not a good idea. Already. Validate that. So it's, it's really finding that place where you can uh, give them the message, you matter, your needs matter, your point of view matters, even if it's different to mine. Mm. I can hear you and I can hold that space for you while we engage in a process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and what are some of the, the, the changes you, you witness in the children? What happens uh, in, in their world? Yeah. Or 
what are kind of the challenges that they have to, or, or skills that, that they have to develop to be able to also be in that space with their yeah. fathers? Yeah. So initially, I think there's a, there's a lot of tentativeness. They, they're very mm. scared, very, very anxious to open up and to share their, their experiences and their feelings. Because Does, it, so diff- does it differ when they're younger to when they're older, or is it like yes. everyone's scared? I think the young, the younger the child is, the less fearful they are. All right. But um, the, less. You know, it's the less fearful. Yeah. I think the younger, younger they children, are, the less fearful. Mm, yeah. Wow. Younger children, for me, that's my experience. Yeah, you know, no, younger children are, are, they seem to be more open. They have less history of being shut down. You know, there's that song by Cat Stevens. I think it goes something along the lines of the moment I learned to speak, I was told to shut up. Yeah. So I think younger children haven't quite, you know, had a long history of being invalidated and being okay. told that, you know, they don't, you know, I know dad knows better, mom knows better, you know nothing. Um, and I think, you know, as they become closer to their teenage years and beyond, they start realizing, actually, I am very different from my mom and dad. I have very different thoughts. But they're too afraid to share those because they, they go against the flow, maybe. They go against the status quo. They go against the you know, the rules of behavior that parents have been trying to teach them all these years. Mm. So that's one thing. The other thing is that they don't, children do not actually want to be disloyal. They don't want to threaten their parents. They really don't. So one of the things I find in therapy and individual therapy with children is that they don't want to snitch on their parents. They're very loyal towards their parents. And for a child to speak to a parent directly and say, you know, living with you is tough and you hurt me in this way and you've done this that's made me feel very unsafe. It's like the fear is oh my goodness, you know, I'm not allowed to do this. I can't speak at this level. I'm not going to be hurt. I'm going to be punished, Mm. you know? So Mm. they they have to overcome that anxiety and it has to be very safe for them to start the process. Um, And then also children often don't know how to articulate. They don't know how to put in words, especially boys. Girls are pretty, you know, there's definitely a difference between boys and girls. Most boys find it really difficult to articulate what they want to say. And this is another reason why they don't share what's going on inside of them, because it comes out weird. And then they're like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Well, that's what you said. Yes. No, 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 it's not exactly. So it's a process of discovery. They discover their voice. And mm. that is the most profound change in, in the children. They discover their voice and they discover what it feels like to speak from their truth, from their mm. place of, you know, essence. And that it is okay to do this. It's it's all right. Yeah. Really okay. You're going to be safe. Yeah. That's yeah. that's huge. The the uh, in my early twenties, I did a lot of work in orphanages. Mm-hmm. And what was that loyalty? I'm 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 just wanted to comment on the loyalty thing that you mentioned. And children always being loyal to their parents. Um, and you know, I spend time with these children and I know some of their stories and their parents and what's been done to the children and why they were taken away. But when you talk to the children about their parents, they never say a bad thing. All the parents were great. The best parents ever, but you know, the backstory and I was so um, sad and, and almost shocking to hear them talk about their parents, even though these 
horrific things that have been done to them by, by the same parents. That loyalty really, really mm -hmm. runs deep. And maybe you can comment on, on how we also like rather, you know, disown and disassociate with parts of ourselves to mm. keep that connection with our parents. Mm. Yeah, absolutely true. So, you know, if you get a message um, constantly that something about you and the way you live your life or the way you think or the way you feel or express yourself is not really acceptable, um, it, it creates a, an experience of incompetence in that particular area of development. So you don't feel secure, you don't feel confident to express that part of you. So, I mean, an example, and it's not just with parents, it's society in whole, as a whole. So I remember when I was quite young, I, want, I really, really wanted to join the school choir. I, was, I thought that this would make me so happy. I loved singing. <laughs> and I, I went along and I joined the choir and I was told very soon that I'm tone deaf and I cannot sing. And, um, I, uh, and it was done in such a way that I was so ashamed. Um, and when I then, you know, went home and shared this with my family, they all laughed and said, yeah, you, you can't sing. You absolutely can't sing. So I shut down. It, it's not that I, you know, wanted to be an opera singer or, you know, I wanted to make a career of singing. Mm, mm. I just enjoyed the experience of singing. But I shut that down and I stopped enjoying it even on my own. Even, you know, going and swinging at the bottom of the garden, I used to go and sing and swing. I stopped doing that because I started hearing myself with a critical voice yeah. that, you know, this sounds terrible. And so I stopped singing. And what could have been developed, I could have developed some capacity there maybe. I wouldn't, I didn't have to be, a, a, as I say, a, a star but I could have developed some capacity to sing in tune huh. and enjoy it even more. But I shut down that part of myself that if I, if in public I start singing um, because everyone else is singing, I, I can feel the dread and the shame overcome me because wow. I know that somebody's listening to me and I'm sounding terrible. So, you know, I mouth the words and I don't sing. And it's such a joyful experience to sing. You know, even if you are tone deaf, who cares? Yeah, it doesn't matter. The, the experience of singing is still a, a positive experience and lifts our mood. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And also, not only that, I could have developed. If yeah. I'd been in the choir, I could have, you know, it's something you can learn to improve. Yeah. Maybe not be brilliant at, but to improve. Yeah. But because I was so shut down and almost frozen in that area of my life, um, I just didn't have the confidence and the the freedom to express that part of myself. Yeah, so nice. that's an example of how the messages that we get as children about ourselves, about the way we do things, the way we think, the way we engage with the world, in, uh, informs us in a way that makes us shut down those parts that don't get um, freedom to, to be expressed. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we mustn't, as parents, we mustn't set boundaries and we mustn't help children you know, learn kind of that certain things in society are not going to serve them. It's not okay to pick your nose in public, you know. It's mm. really not okay. <laughs> it's not going to serve you when you're, you know, on an airplane or in a job interview. Yeah. Not going to help you make friends and influence other people. Um, so it's a, it's a balance between, you know, validating the child's essence without shutting them down 
And it's also not helpful to over-exaggerate a child's, um, a, a particular quality that a child has, you know. So, I mean, the other thing that I experienced as a child is I got a lot of feedback about being a ballet dancer. I used to do ballet and I was told by lots of people, oh, you're going to be an amazing ballet dancer. You should do this on the stage. You should become, you know, this is a career. And actually, I wasn't that good. I really wasn't that good. But I thought I was. Uh. And so I started pursuing after school. I started pursuing ballet as a career. And I soon found out, actually, it's, it's, I didn't have the suppleness that I needed. I just didn't <laughs> have that. So, again, it's that balance between, you know, finding out what is the essence of your child. What is their real who are they and what do they want to express and let them encourage and at the same time be realistic yeah, yeah. which is a hard thing to do and and probably the the only way that i found works for me or um, i feel like i can be a, as successful as a parent as i can be is to engage with your child to be curious about who they are how they think what they feel engage with that that'll That'll give you more information to know how to guide your your child. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, and Francois, that is for every relationship. True. Is the curiosity yeah. to stay curious instead of entering into engagement with, yeah. you know, preconceived ideas. It's it's really about stay curious, curious. about what's there. I couldn't agree more, Carol. For, for me, the number one tool for relationships, to use in relationships, is curiosity. Yeah. Not only about your partner or your child, but yourself. Yeah. You know, being curious about why you feel certain things, think a certain way, behave a certain way. I think that's, that's what's sometimes hard for us to do, to actually try and access all the information that's, that's, all the information that's locked up inside of us um, and when you mentioned men not being able and, and boys not being able to articulate I think that's why we we're not allowed to to think and feel certain things so we're not used to expressing them because we don't really know that they exist yeah. in my opinion so we don't have access to that so there's no way that we can communicate that with with important people in our lives yeah uh, I wanted to ask you about the the downstream repair mm. as well. Could you maybe talk about what what that looks like and 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 how is it different from the upstream prevention? How do you approach it differently? Yeah, so if at I think all. one of the main differences. Yeah, so there's some similarities in the approach, but I think the main difference with downstream repair is that it's always going to take longer. So, um, you know, it's, it's like anything where there's an early intervention, if there's any kind of challenge in life. Um, so, you know, take, take, for example, a child who has speech problems. If they get help and there's early intervention for that, it means that their speech problems can be um, mod- moderated and modulated and they can really develop the skill that becomes fluid going forward. However, if it's left and it's not dealt with, then they go for speech therapy when they're in their 30s for a stutter, for example. It takes a lot longer to actually do the work um, because there's so many ingrained behaviors, some of which are very unconscious. 
So that's the first thing is the length of time that it takes. And it's also a lot more painful. There's a lot more pain attached because as much as we don't want to behave in certain ways, sometimes it becomes our survival suit. The way we survive our childhood becomes something that serves us as adults, we believe. Mm. And so sometimes what we have to do is differentiate between what is my survival suit and what is my reality, my real essence of who I am. So one of my survival suits is, is to, you know, be very busy and to take control of situations and, you know, be quite assertive in situations. Now, that I learned to do as a child because it served me and it, it helped me to grow and it helped me to develop. However, it's it kind of the pendulum swings a little bit too far and, you know, being too controlling or too busy or too assertive is not going to serve me as an adult, particularly in a relationship with another strong individual. So I kind of have to undo a little bit downstream, whereas upstream, I can learn that flexibility and adaptability so that I can fluidly flow between keeping busy and resting, Mm. you know, taking Mm. charge of situations and giving other people the, the freedom to take charge. So the, the later you leave it, the less fixed flexibility, adaptability there is, and the more time it takes. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and could you talk about that survival um, instinct, that survival suit? Because um, uh, it, it does serve us, doesn't it? It yes. is important to develop survival skills. We need them. Yes. Without that, we'll be um, much worse off and and probably get a lot more damaged as we grow up if we don't have those. So how do we learn when they are still applicable? When do we still use our survival instincts? Yeah. So I think, you know, your survival survival suit is not necessarily an instinct. I think there's a difference between the two. Mm. The survival suit is really kind of like an emotional protection that we develop in order to protect our vulnerabilities. And yes, they're necessary. They've served us. They've often served us really, really well. So let me give you an example, um, Francois. A child growing up in a a, a difficult environment, maybe where there's some emotional abuse, not necessarily verbal abuse, but they learn the best way to keep myself safe is to go away, is to go, go to my bedroom, find something to do, shut the door, be away so that I'm safe. And that helps me to survive and helps me to deal with the pain that I'm being exposed to. Now, that's great. That is a very good, uh, intelligent decision for that child in that moment. However, fast forward down the line, every time that young girl, for example, engages in conflict, all they want to do is go away and shut the door. They don't know that there are other alternatives. So that's the survival suit that no longer is serving them. And the the difference between holding on to your survival suit and knowing when to take it off is when it's no longer serving you. And you have to take it off in order to develop other ways of doing things. How do you know it's no longer serving you? Well, because you're going to find that it escalates the conflict in your in your adult relationship, you going away and shutting the door leads to disconnection with your partner, 
and an increased level of conflict. And you don't feel happier and safe anymore behind that locked door. You feel alone. You feel lonely. You actually would wish the person would come through the door and put their arms around you, but you don't know how to reach out to them because your arms have been, you know, straight jacketed in yeah. your survival suit. Yeah. So it's learning to let go of that and reach out and go, okay, when is it going to, at some point I have to give myself permission to reach out and open that door and go and talk and go and engage and go and dialogue and find a process of re, I have to take as much responsibility for reconnecting as I'm expecting my partner to. Mm. So it's, it's, and this is what happens in emogotherapy is people begin to discover and differentiate between what is my survival suit and what is, what is the real me? You know, who's the real me? And the real me is a lot more flexible and adaptable than, when, that, than we believe. And, and the feelings of full aliveness that are reclaimed when we get out of our survival suit, it's never going to go away. It's always going to be there. We can go and put it on when it's necessary. Yeah. And when we are making a conscious choice to do so, yeah. because a lot of the time our, our shift into survival is an unconscious thing. It's not, a, mm. it's not sitting down there going, okay, now what is in the best interest of me, my relationship, my partner right now? Is it best for me to go away and close the door? Yes, right now it is. Therefore, let me communicate that and do it. Mm. Sometimes it's not in the best interest. Yeah, so it's mostly yeah. reactive. Yes, okay. exactly. Uh, you, you touched on... on yeah, um, sitting in your room there, feeling alone and, and wishing your partner would actually come and talk to you. Maybe could you please elaborate on, on what an open and uh, hidden wish is? So it's, um, it's a longing and a, a, an open wish and a hidden wish. You want, you want me to dif differentiate between the two? Yes. Okay. So um, an open wish is something that you're really conscious of. You know, you, you know that you want it. Um, you can, you're clear if you ask the question, what is it that you long for? What is it that you wish for? You can articulate it and you can speak it. A hidden wish or an underlying wish is something that we may not really be conscious about because we've disowned it. And that's part of the, because of those messages we got as a child, we've disowned it. We no longer have access to it. We no longer have capacity and yet sometimes it is visible to others, but it's not visible to ourselves. So it's, it's, you know, when we deny things. So the woman who goes into the room and longs for connection, for example, that's, that might, she might be very conscious of that. But what she doesn't realize is that she's quite manipulative because she will get cross if, so she goes away, she wants to be left alone, but she gets upset because nobody comes to look for her. And that she won't own. Yes. She won't say, I want you to come and look for me. Mm. I want you to come and find me. Because mm. that wasn't allowed. Yeah. You know, fine, go to your room. Stay in your room until you stop being angry. You know, that's kind of some of the messages that she may have got as a child. Apart from a survival suit, it was always also reinforced. So, yeah, the, the, the unexpressed wish is the longing that we don't know how to or have the words for, and we don't even know that actually we're doing it sometimes, but it's coming <laughs> across in a very negative way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky concept, Francois. So, I mean, there's yes. lots of this information in, in Harville Hendrix's books, Getting the Love You Want, Keeping the Love You Find, where this kind of underlying, hidden, disowned part of ourselves is, is beautifully explained yeah 
Yeah, the, the open and the hidden wish is something that really fascinates me because uh, if you if you think about what the person on the outside sees, so if if, if like let's use your example when when someone goes to their room and withdraws like that, the it seems like they want to be left alone. Exactly. So that looks like their wish, but actually exactly. the hidden wish is come look for me, come connect with me, yes. and I found that. Um, when when couples realize that and understand that, when they, their partners are able to actually share that, you know, I actually, this is actually what I need in those moments. It looks like I need you to leave me alone, but what I actually need you to do is look for me, come sit next to me. Yeah. And and I try to to be very specific about that. And and maybe you can comment on how you approach it, but try to figure out exactly what the need is and how you one that need to be met so come sit next to me talk or don't talk ask me a question hold me just hold my hand just sit there be quiet yeah exactly what is it that you need and you want your partner to do that'll address that that deeper need yeah beautiful absolutely the more specific the better mm. and you know if you imagine um as a child francois that the child because we also have this ambivalence, you know, a part of us wants to be left alone and a part yes. of us wants connection, you know, and as children, we're pushed into making choices because ambivalence is not something that is encouraged. Mm -hmm. So you can't be ambivalent, make a decision, you know, you can't have both, you can't have everything you want, you can't have both. And yeah, in practical terms, that's true. But you know, a, a teenager on the one hand does want to be left alone, but they don't want to be left alone forever. You know, they want both. They want somebody at some point to come and see, are you okay? And I think that fast forwards to the future as well. At what point do you want? So, I mean, you, it can be quite confusing for a partner. You yes. know, as you say, you know, you, yeah. you go into your room, you close the door. The message is you don't want me. So I'll leave yeah. you alone. I don't, I can't read you any other way unless you articulate that. Yeah. And it is about, yeah, I do need to be left alone. Yeah, I do want to be left alone for about 10 minutes. Yes. But then I want you to come and find me and find out if I'm okay and engage with me and love me and in this way, particularly. Yeah. So it is learning how to, <laughs> and that's where the curiosity comes in about myself. First of all, oh my goodness, you know, I'm sending out all these messages that you must leave me alone. Yeah. But deep down inside, that's not what I want forever. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, we get stuck in the rigidity instead of being flexible and fluid around expressing our needs and, and meeting the needs of others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what are some of the, the lessons or what's the impact that um, the work that you do has had on your relationship or relationships? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes I sit back and I ask myself that question because it can be quite subtle. But if I look back at myself and how I've changed relationally over the years, um, I certainly think, and I, I think, you know, maybe my husband would be the best part, person or my children would be the best people to ask this question. <laughs> Definitely. Of. But, um, you know, I, I certainly know that I have quite radically changed, actually, in terms of being quite a rigid, um, very, very unconscious partner and parent. Um, you know, with very, very unrealistic expectations and, um, and demands um, and, you know, very selfish, actually, when I look at it in, in retrospect. 
And my husband has been my greatest teacher. And I never thought that was ever possible. I'm a psychologist. I'm a woman. You know, we are higher evolved beings. Mm -hmm. But I have really been able to stand back and look at him and think, oh, my word, what a gift. And there was a time in our relationship where, you know, the power struggle was so bad that, uh, you know, I just didn't want to be around him. And I'm sure he didn't want to be around me. You know, it was really very uncomfortable in that power struggle time. But now I look at him and I'm so grateful because if it wasn't for him, um, I, I don't think I would have grown. And that's, that's what I've learned from Imago is the gender of love is not happiness. Hmm. It's, growth. it's growth. And when you're willing to grow and you open yourself up to the opportunities of growth that your partner invites you to, you know, so every trigger is an opportunity for growth. Hmm. And when you live that, it's freeing. Yeah. So yeah. I feel maybe, you know, I'm a truer version of myself now than I perhaps ever have been. Makes sense. And Thank there's still work to be done. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Yay. It's never <laughs> over. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, uh, what you mentioned about the, the happiness, uh, actually, one of the major turning points for uh, Nicolina and I, my wife, um, is um, after having a one of our typical fights, where you know it's it's I still can't remember what it was about, even though that day made a big difference in our relationship in the end. Um, but we were just kind of stuck, and I didn't understand what she really was talking about, and vice versa, and so. I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to. I'm, I have to go to work now. So I was on my way to do a session with a couple, helping them resolve conflict and connect and all of that. And I was feeling like a fraud because I couldn't, I couldn't connect now. Now I'm going to try and do this for other people. Um, which, looking back, I, I understand it's okay because I am not perfect, but I felt like a real fake and a fraud that day. Mm-hmm. So before I got out of my car, I was just sitting there thinking, you know what, I want to be happy. And something just clicked inside of me. I was like, okay, what will it take for me to be happy? Even when we have conflict, even when certain things happen, what, what will it take for me to be happy? And the answer was growth. To put it plainly, it meant like, okay, how can I stay engaged during conflict instead of doing the usual withdrawing? Because that's what I do. I withdraw or I, you know, start thinking and being analytical and very logical. Uh, my wife's the opposite. What can I do to be happy even, even in that moment? And that made a major difference because that took me to curiosity. So now, um, we both agree, Nicolina. I. Uh, it's about a year, maybe two years now ago that that this penny really dropped for us. It made a seventy percent difference in our relationship. That big, even though we've we've done Imago before and all kinds of other couples sessions and and guided uh, therapy sessions and workshops, and I've been trained in this, all of that. Just that one realization that. Uh, what would it look like? Uh, I don't know if you know who Tim Ferriss is. 
you know, okay. He, he has this yeah. question that, that goes like, you know, what would it look like if it, if it was easy? And that's kind of what, what that was. What would it look like if I could be calm and happy and content in those moments? So anyway, that was a big turning uh, point for us. But Carol, thank you so, so much for um, sharing all your great ideas, thoughts, and work uh, with us. So where can people reach you when they want to connect or learn more about what you do? So, Francois, I've so enjoyed chatting to you. And thank you for that story um, that you shared. Um, and I do think that, it, you know, it's a, it, everything takes time. There's a process to everything. There's no quick fixes here. So, yeah, reaching me, I do have a website. Um, it is uh, carol um, dash and dixon one word, dot org. I am based in the UK at the moment. So um, back and forth from South Africa when lockdown ends. <laughs> um, so I am working in, in the UK for the next couple of years. Okay. Um, I also am on um, the Imago Africa website. You can get my details there. Um, my email is imago, C for Carol, D for Dixon. So imagocd okay. at gmail.com. All right. And that's probably Great. the best way of, of making contact with me. Okay. Thank you. And to end off today, what is one thing that you think you have a very fresh perspective on? What do you think you view very differently um, from what most people, uh, how most people see it? Um, oh, that's a tough question, Francois. <laughs> no, that's a tough question. <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, I think that um, I think that I have the capacity to zoom in on the real stuff fairly quickly. So mm. when I work with couples, uh, I think within the first two sessions, when I work with with people generally, and it's not perfect, but within the first couple of sessions, we're already in into where we should be. Okay. Um, and so the process can, you know, I think getting to the real stuff is important. Huh. Sometimes it does take a bit of time, but I think that I have a way of doing that. Don't ask me how. <laughs> <laughs> superpower. <laughs> ask my superpower. I need yeah. to actually label it and claim it. <laughs> yeah. All right, Carol. Thank you so much. Hope you have an epic day. Well. Much love. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.